Yerushalayim. This is WebYeshiva.org, and it's time to begin our Halakha Shir. Uh, our topic for this series is copyright and pirated digital material. Uh, before I begin, let me make some technical comments. If you want to ask a question during the class, feel free to type your question on chat. I will see it on my screen, and then I can incorporate the answer into the ongoing shiur. Uh, as far as the material is concerned, how do I get that on the screen? Here we go. Uh, there are two basic threads that we have to consider in order to come to any conclusions regarding the halachot governing copyright. One thread is commercial copying of material. That is, you want to, to, to sell the, 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 the stuff that you're pirating, the stuff that you're stealing. That's one thread which has to be discussed. And the second thread which has to be discussed is the one I'm primarily interested in in this series is uh, non-commercial copying, uh, non-commercial downloading, downloading uh, uh, whatever it is from the internet for your own personal use. You're not going to sell it. You're not going to make any profit off it. Now, the, 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 these, these two threads are intertwined in the halakhic discussions. So we're going to have to look at sources dealing with both. But I'm largely going to disregard the commercial aspects. And I want to focus more on the non-commercial element of uh, photocopying a book or an article for your own purposes, downloading or copying uh, someone's digital uh, text, digital song, digital software, you name it, uh, either from someone's uh, um, uh, disk on key or download from the internet, doesn't matter. Those are the issues that I want to focus on. Okay, let's begin with uh, the material. Um, Click over here. Here we got it. Okay. Uh, we're beginning with the Ramah, Ramosha Isolus. Ramosha Isolus, uh, uh, from the beginning of the 17th century, was the Ashkenaz participant in writing the Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch was really written by Rabbi Yosef Karo, the great Sephardic authority. Uh, the Ramah was the Ashkenaz authority who added notes uh, to the Shulchan Aruch. So we're talking about a heavy weight here. Let's see the text. This is from a chuva that he wrote. And uh, uh, when I uh, go through the sources, I'm not going to bother mentioning where I drew the sources from because you have the exact source on the screen if you want to uh, look up the original text and uh, see the misspellings I've made in copying it. I'm not a great typist. Uh, you have the original sources always, uh, always on the screen, so I don't have to mention that. Here's the text as written by the Ramah, Ramosha Isolis, uh, towards the beginning of the 17th century. Hagaon, Rav Meir Padua. Uh, Rav Meir Padua, he was one of the great rabbis of that period in, in Italy. Uh, he fixed in his mind, this great rabbi made a decision, took a decision in his mind. And he had this project in mind, and he joined together with one of the great people in his country, the Hainu, namely a gentleman. Uh, that's a, a, a polite expression for a non-Jew. So um, I think I'm on maximum. Let me just make sure my maximum volume here. 
Uh, yeah, I am. But I can move the microphone closer, and then it should be better. Okay. The um, uh, so, so, so the, the, the Maharam the Padua had a project in mind. He joined together with a gentleman, that uh, refers to a non-Jew in Italy, uh, the gentleman with whom he uh, partnered was uh, a non-Jewish printer of books. And now back in those days, we're talking now about the early days of printing. Uh, with the, these, are the, uh, these are the days when printing was just getting started. Well, we're after the period of Incunabula, but you know, there, there, was, there was a significant amount of printing going on, but it was really still the beginning of, uh, of printing and all of the printing presses in Europe, Italy, Spain, everywhere, all of the printing presses were owned by non-Jews. But uh, of course, the non-Jewish owners of the printing presses, the, the printing houses, they knew full well that one of their primary uh, customer, customer bases was the Jews. The Jews would buy books. And therefore, the non-Jewish owners of the printing houses wanted to hire Jews or join together in partnership with Jews in order to set in type and print Jewish books, Torah, Mishnah, Gemara, and so forth and so on, because the, 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 those were the customers who would buy the books and they'd be able to make a profit. So here we have the Maharama Padua has a, print, a printing project, a publishing project in mind. And of course, he has to partner with a non-Jewish owner of a printing press. Hiskimu Yachtav, the great rabbi and the gentleman agreed, agreed that the project would be printing and marketing the Mishnah Torah by Rambam. Rambam's Mishnah Torah. One of the great works of Halacha, and there was surely a market for that. And therefore, if they did a good job, they'd make make profit, and they would. Maharam Padua was interested not only in making a profit; he wanted to disseminate Torah. He wanted the Jews to be able to learn Torah, and this would help. The, the project went into production. What they intended to do, they did. Be'ezus Hashem, God helped them. Uh, they were successful. And the, the books rolled off the printing press. There was a bit more to it than that. And they had to be bound together. You know, like, uh, printing was not as, uh, you know, this was the, the way they used to print books. But uh, finally, uh, the books were, were, were bound together and ready for sale. Uh, the, the great rabbi who was the partner in this project edited the texts very carefully finally when the books were actually rolling off the press when they were when they were bound and ready for sale there were no errors in them uh, all the chaff had been removed and only the pure grains remained. Uh, he did a wonderful job in, in, in typesetting, editing, proofreading, and so forth and so on. It came out really good. Uh, so far, the story is a very nice one. Hine, behold, what happened? 
Kam echad, kam kein gentleman, me'ashirei ha'aretz. Another non-Jewish gentleman, another non-Jewish gentleman owner of a competing publishing house in Italy, rose up against the Maharama Padua and his non-Jewish partner. Amar, this second gentleman, the owner of the second competing publishing house, said, I'm going to uh, also publish a Mishnah Torah by the Rambam. Those Jews, uh, there's a very good market. I'll be able to sell a, a lot of books also. What a good idea the Maharama Padua had to publish that. I'm going to compete against them. Ad peace, Anochi Gamani Aitu shall issue a new edition of the Mishnah Torah, the Chenasa, and that's exactly what he did. So now we have two non Jewish publishing houses uh, issuing the same Sefer. The first was the one partnered with the Jewish rabbi. I don't know exactly who was hired uh, by the second gentleman to do the typesetting and the editing of the second edition of the Mishnah Torah. He had to hire Jews for that purpose as well. I don't know exactly who he hired, but we have an original, a first publisher, and a Johnny-come-lately on the market who is the competitor. That's the background. Now, the, the, the question is, is all this legit? Uh, uh, does the first publisher have any copyright? Does the first publisher have some exclusive right on the market, and has the second publisher somehow violated that? Well, here is the approach of the Ramon. Hine, behold, there are four elements which have to be discussed in order to come to a conclusion about whether or not the first publisher has a copyright, has ownership of the, of the intellectual property here. There are four topics, and we have to go through them one at a time. Uh, we're going to discuss the four points and build our conclusions on them. And I shall say, my conclusion is going to be, right? he's telling you what his conclusion is going to be before he gives you the evidence, but we'll, we'll see how it follows. My conclusion is going to be, my conclusion is going to be, that the first publisher has the right to first sell all of his copies. And when he's uh, sold out and he's sold all of his copies, then and only then can the second publisher begin to market the books which he printed. It's true that we Jews live in exile. And we have no authority. Uh, we have no power over these non-Jewish gentlemen. There's no particular reason why they should listen to us. Uh, my conclusion is going to be that in, in accord with Torah, the second publisher is not allowed to release his books onto the market until the first publisher is sold out. That's going to be my conclusion, but I have no, no power. I have no authority over these non-Jewish gentlemen to enforce, to enforce my opinion. Nonetheless, nonetheless, I'm not going to abandon the discussion, even though I have no power to enforce it. Uh, but 
the Jews are going to listen to me, and the customer base here are all Jewish, and, and the customer base is going to listen to me, and I'm going to instruct the Jews not to buy any of the copies from the second publisher. Lo I'm going to instruct the Jews not to buy any copy of the Mishnah Torah unless you're buying a copy that was published by the first printer or either buy it directly from the printer or, or from his representatives. Well, now let's come to the four reasons which underlie the decision. Okay, his decision is it's prohibited to market the second uh, uh, edition in competition with the first, and here are the reasons. First, obvious basis of argument is in the Gemara as follows. Ravuna said in the Gemara, Hai Bar Mavua. Person who lives in a passageway. He lives in a courtyard. There are several houses in the passageway, uh, uh, and uh, he's one of them. He's one of the residents of the passageway. Ukim Rechaya, and this resident in the passageway set up a mill to grind flour, and he made a little business. He ground wheat into flour. He milled he milled wheat into flour. A little business he opened up in his house, and uh, people came with their wheat kernels, and he milled them into flour. He, that was his that was his livelihood. Okay, that's okay. He opened up a little business in his in his house. Another resident of the same passageway saw that he is making so much money. And a sec- the second resident in the passageway went into competition with the first. The second guy opened up a, a, a mill, uh, bought a millstone and started milling, milling wheat into flour. Well, here we have competition between two residents of the same passageway. Do you know who? The halacha is ma'akevalea. The first guy who started the business first, he has dibs on the market, and therefore, the first guy who started the business has the halachic right to block the second guy and prevent him from opening up a competing business. Oh, well, you see, uh, whoever opens up the business first, whoever, has the, whoever first has the idea to open up a mill in that neighborhood, he has or she has the right to prevent anyone else from opening a competing mill. Mashma, this implies, this implies that, that, that even though the first miller saw what was happening, even though the first miller saw that the second guy was setting up a mill, bringing a millstone, he saw what was happening, uh, and he didn't protest at the very first moment. He, 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 at first, he didn't know what to do. And only when the second guy was actually in business did it occur to the first guy that he could protest, even though he did not protest instantly. Nonetheless, nonetheless, the right is with the first miller 
and he can force the second one to stop his business. Him came, therefore, Therefore, according to the halacha in the Gemara, the second gentleman had no right to compete with the first one. Of course, they're non-Jews. They're not going to listen to me. I can't force them. I have no authority. I have no power over them. But the second gentleman was wrong to uh, uh, go into competition with the first. And uh, had these all been Jewish personalities, and if they'd come to my my rabbinic court, I would have told the first guy that he has the right to uh, to force the second guy to close his business. Therefore, as far as halacha is concerned, <clears throat> the first printer had the right to insist that the second second printer cease insist and close. Uh, his his business and not market that book. Okay, so that's the, the the first reason why the first person who establishes a market has the right over the market and can prevent uh, other people from competing. Now let, let, let me just point out that subsequent generations of Poskin speak endlessly about uh, uh, how close. The two have to be how far away, what makes a different neighborhood, exactly what's the same market. Uh, uh, this is discussed endlessly by the postkin, but I, I don't want to focus on the commercial elements here. If we were focusing on the commercial elements, we would have to define precisely what constitutes opening up a competing business exactly next door. How far away do you have to be to, in order to say you have a different market? Well, these would be very important questions. If we were talking about the commercial aspect, I'm just going to leave those for another series of classes. The second reason why the first printer has the right to the market, who came to Pericle Yachpur was in the same chapter tomorrow. Ravdimi, Meinahardo, one of these rabbis from Polonia, I see Grogrospasvina brought a, a date. By ship to town, you know Babylonia is a place with uh, uh, with many rivers. Uh, merchandise was transported primarily uh, by river. It still is uh, in that part of the world. And he brought a shipment of dates to town to market. His rabbi brought a shipment of dates to town to market. The Jewish uh, the president of the Jewish community, the Reish Galusa, uh, said to Rava, Pukhazi, go out and look. I hear, I hear that Rabbi Dimi brought a shipment of dates to town to, to market them. But Rava, go out, go out into the market and take a look and tell, report to me what's happening. Please check out this Rabbi Dimi who brought the dates to, uh, to town to market. Check him out. Interview him. Uh, question him. Come back and report to me whether he is really a rabbinic scholar. He calls himself rabbi. Please, Rava, go check him out and see whether he's legit, whether he really is a rabbinic scholar. Look at Leshuka. If so, the market belongs to him. Rashi explains on this Gemara, well, what do you mean the market belongs to him? Uh, well, 
If a Talmud Hachem, if a rabbinic scholar is opening up a business in town, he has the right to sell his merchandise first and only when his merchandise has been sold are other people allowed to sell the same type of merchandise in town. So the first source we saw in the previous screen teaches us that in general, whoever establishes the market first has the right to the market. The second source, which we see on the screen at the moment, teaches us that if a Talmud Hachem, a rabbinic scholar, establishes the market, is another reason why no one is allowed to compete until he has sold his merchandise and then other people can enter the market. Well, that's the second reason. The third reason for uh, assigning the market exclusively to the first mar to the first person who grabbed it. This third third reason we find in the midrash. You know, there are two kinds of midrash. When people talk about midrash, they're usually referring to the midrash, which deals with the storyline of the Torah. But there is another body of midrash which deals with the halachic content of the Torah. Uh, the first is called Midrash Agadah, the Midrash dealing with the storyline. That's what most people are familiar with. But there's also the Midrash Halacha, uh, the Midrash which deals with the halachic content of the, um, of the uh, Torah. Uh, it doesn't cover Sefer Breshit because there's not a whole lot of halacha in Sefer Breshit. It begins with Shmot and, and, and the, the halachic Midrash that we're about to quote from was written by the same rabbis who gave us the Mishnah in the period of the Mishnah and therefore has a weight similar to the weight of the Mishnah. And being Midrash, it of course begins by quoting a verse. The verse in the Torah says, if you're in business, you one Jew cannot oppress another Jew in business. You have to be fair in business. That's what the verse in the Torah says. The Midrash, the great rabbis of the Mishnah in the Midrash, conclude, Lim de Torah, what this verse intends to teach us, the embodied note, that if you're coming to market to buy something, you're a customer, buy the goods, buy the merchandise you want to buy from another Jew. And if you're sim similarly, if you're selling merchandise and you have a choice of customers, prefer to sell it to the Jewish customer. Given a choice, a customer who has a choice of supporting a Jewish or a non-Jewish enterprise should, should uh, uh, patronize the Jewish store. Uh, the seller who has a choice of uh, selling to a Jewish customer or a non-Jewish customer should supply uh, the Jewish customer. Well, here we have a third reason why the first, uh, uh, the first uh, printer wins the game, because uh, anyone who buys from the first printer is going to be uh, in, uh, contributing to the livelihood of the great rabbi who was the partner 
There's one more reason. Where is it? Here comes the fourth reason. The fourth reason is very stable and gives us a very clear reason for our conclusions. It's the Gemara in Ksubis. The Gemara says, the Gemara says that uh, it is prohibited to keep in your house, it is prohibited to hold in your house a safer, a book which has not been properly proofread. You know, back in those days, books were all handwritten, right? There, there were only manuscripts back in the days of the Gemara. Everyone knows that. So it's prohibited to have a manuscript in your house unless the manuscript is muga, has been proofread very carefully. Well, you have 30 days to have the manuscript proofread. You buy a Torah, you buy a Mishnah, you buy a Gemara, whatever safer it is that you buy and bring into your house, you have 30 days to have it proofread to make sure that the text is correct. Beyond that, you're not allowed to have the safer in your house. You can't keep Svarim uh, in your house when the text is incorrect. You have to have it proofread and make sure. Maybe you had a proofread before you bought it, but uh, if it hasn't been proofread, came for, came straight from the from the scribe's pen, had not been proofread yet, you have 30 days in which to do that. Shina'amar, the verse in the Torah, which is the source of this idea, al tashken bolecha avla, the verse says, you're not allowed to have residing in your house any evil. That means you can't have in your house a book which has incorrect text in it. You got 30 days to make, to proofread it. Mifaresha Asheri, and the Asheri is Rosh, Rabbeinu Asher, the last of the great Tosafists from France. He was uh, he was from France, but he moved to Spain. He became a rabbi in Spain, but he, he was at the very end of the Middle Ages, the last of the great Tosafists. Uh, he said, and Hagot Mamoniot agree, the great commentary on the Mishnah Torah, we're not talking only about a safe Torah, which has to be proofread. Even if you have uh, the Book of Prophets, Tuvim, uh, Tehillim, any Sefer Kodesh, any Sefer Kodesh, like a Talmud or a Halacha book, anything from the Torah Shabal Peh, any Torah book must be proofread. Well, maybe it was proofread before you bought it. That's you know, nowadays you buy a printed book. So I hope it was proofread before it was printed. But back in those days, you bought a, uh, uh, a manuscript straight from the scribe. Well, maybe it was proofread before you bought it. That's good. And you, you, then you're off the hook. Otherwise, you have to proofread it within 30 days of bringing it, in, bringing it into your house. Therefore, bottom line, we have four reasons why the first publisher established the market. And uh, therefore, the market belongs exclusively to the first publisher. He can sell his books first. Shalom Yikne Shum Adam. Say from Maimunin and Pasum Mechadash Mekarov Ba'u. No Jew 
should buy any of the copies from the second publisher, uh, uh, you can only buy books from the first publisher or from the agents of the first publisher. That is the tshuva of the Ramah. Now, let's think about it for a moment. But one thing is perfectly clear in this tshuva. The Ramah is clearly rejecting the idea that the first publisher has eternal permanent rights over the book. The rights which the first publisher have, the rights which the first publisher has are limited to possessing the market until the first printing is 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 out of print until until he's sold all all the copies from the first printing. It's a very limited right, as limited as far as time is concerned. The first printer, the first publisher has the right to the market as long as he is still selling books from the first printing. The right to the market is limited to that. Similarly, uh, the rabbi who, who brought the dates to town to market them, uh, he has the right to the market until he has sold that shipment of dates. There's an expiration date to the copyright, according to the uh, to the Ramah. The expiration of the copyright is exactly at the point in time where the the person who possesses the shuk, the person who possesses the market, has uh, uh, sold all of his uh, all the merchandise which he has on hand. From that point on, the market is open to competition, and uh, anyone is allowed to come into the market and start competing. Okay. Well, uh, now we're beginning to uh, to have an idea that uh, if um, that if uh, 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 someone publishes a book um, or music or software or or anything, uh, 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 there the are some rights to the market as long as you're the first, and those rights extend for as much time as it takes you to sell all of your initial merchandise. Okay, now this is, this is a lovely tshuva by the Ramallah Ramallah, is very influential, but he was in the beginning of the 17th century. And uh, he, even for an old person like me, that's pretty long ago. The, uh, the, the question now arises, is this a, an interesting view of one of the great rabbis, uh, or is this a view which is embraced by subsequent poskim, by subsequent authorities. Uh, if you know anything about rabbis, you know that rabbis disagree with each other. Being a rabbi is largely a full-time job of disagreeing with other rabbis. So we have this lovely understanding given to us by the Ramah, but we want to know whether or not this is the approach which subsequent authorities have embraced or is there some controversy and uh, subsequent rabbis have embraced some other approach here? Somehow I'm missing some chats. Okay. Someone... Yeah, the, well, no, it doesn't make a difference. The, 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 the first printer, uh, what happened was he, he collected a number of manual, well, back in those days, in the late 16th, early 17th century, uh, the way printers worked 
was uh, by uh, purchasing a, a large number of manuscripts of Rashi's commentary on that or Rambam's commentary on this, whatever it is they wanted to publish. They would buy, buy up a lot of manuscripts. They would hire a, a rabbi, a Jewish editor, who would uh, compare all the manuscripts, uh, come up with uh, the best the best text, the most accurate text, and, and that's the way the books were published back in those days. It's called, uh, in the business, they call this a diplomatic uh, edition. A diplomatic edition of a book, a printed book, which is a diplomatic edition, is based on a number of different manuscripts, and in each case, the editor chose the best manuscript on this point, the best manuscript on that point, and then put together the uh, the diplomatic edition, and those are the editions which we still largely work with today. Um, in any event, let's look at contemporary poskim. Uh, the Pischei Choshen, written by Rav Blau, uh, he was uh, one of the great rabbis here in Yerushalayim, passed away around 10, 10 12 years ago, uh, typical, uh, typical in his approach of contemporary rabbis. He wrote as follows. Someone invested a lot of effort in building up a business. If someone invested a lot of effort in putting to, in, in opening up a new business, Jews are prohibited from going into competition. And any innovation, any invention, any new art, any new way of production, any new method of production, uh, kagon, patent, for example. If someone gets a patent in non-Jewish law because they've developed a new way of produce of, of, of a, a, a new method of production, or they've invented something new, any Jew who has a new method of business, no one is allowed to compete with that person. So the, the idea of the Ramah has been embraced by, uh, by the Pischei Choshen. If you are the inventor of whatever it is you invented, whether it's a new method of producing the, 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 the merchandise or a whole new invention, Whatever it is that you invented, you own the invention. The intellectual property is yours, and therefore, no one is allowed to compete with you. Now, uh, it, it sounds at this point as though the, the Pischei Choshen has uh, forgotten about the uh, time limit. Uh, he seems to have dropped the expiration date of the copyright. However, he goes on and says as follows, the continuation of his words, Makomakom in any event, in any event, call me Shiyesh Lo Sefer, anyone who has purchased a book. You go to the bookstore, you buy a book. Uh, back in my generation, uh, you go to the store and you buy a CD. If you look in the old movie, you used to have these these plastic discs called compact discs where you had 
you know, songs and computer programs on them. You, you, you go to the store and you buy uh, digital, whatever it is you buy. Uh, well, if you, if you bought it, it's now yours and you own it. No different in concept than buying a potato in the store. You bring the potato home, you own the potato. You buy a book in the store or software or digital anything, you own it, it's yours. Now, 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 let's think for a moment, what is meant when we say you own it? Why do you own it? Because you bought it, assuming that the sale was legitimate. Uh, uh, since you bought it, you therefore own it. Uh, sale flips ownership from the seller to the buyer. But what is ownership? What do, what do I mean when I say you own something? When I say that you own a book or a potato or anything, what I mean is that you have a huge number of rights regarding that object. If you buy a potato, you have the right to cook it and eat it. You have the right to give it away to someone else as a gift. You have the right to sell it. Uh, you, well, the list of rights it goes on and on and on and on. All of the rights together are called ownership. And if you buy a book or potato or anything legitimately in the market, you own it. All the rights belong to you. The whole any right that's conceivable belongs now to the purchaser. Sale transfers all of the rights from the seller, previous owner, to the buyer, the new owner. Now, this is somewhat different than, than renting an object. If you rent a car, uh, the, 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 it's the car dealership. It's the, it, the car dealership which owns the car, and the, the dealership which owns the car has divided the bundle of rights, some of the rights they give to the customer who is renting the car. You have the right to use the car, but you don't have the right to sell it further. That right is maintained by the car dealership. In rental, some rights are transferred to the person who is renting. In sale, all of the rights get transferred. Therefore, if you have bought a book, there is absolutely no prohibition to photocopy that book. You bought it. It's yours. You own it. You can do with it what you like. You can sell it to someone else. You can rent it out. Uh, you can uh, leave it on your bookshelf for decoration. Uh, well, you can do whatever you want with it. Among the rights you have, and the list is endless, is the right to photocopy it. If you want to sell the book, go ahead. Maybe you can even make a profit. That's what business is. Business is people buy merchandise at one price and hope to sell it at a higher price. You bought a book in the market, maybe you'll find a customer somewhere who'll pay you more than you bought, than you paid for it when you bought it. That's what business is. There is no prohibition to engage in business. Well, in general, there's no prohibition. 
if you buy it, it's yours. You have the right to sell it if you wish, maybe even make a profit. Surely, you have the right to photocopy the book. As long as you're not going into competition with the original merchant. And we understand a little bit about the regulations of going into competition, even though we're not going to focus on that. But if there's no commercial element in photocopying the book, you're not going into competition with the publisher, no problem at all, all is well. A private person who has some book, legitimately, he or she purchased the book. Private person is not in business. Private person is not competing with the, uh, with the publisher. Photocopy the book if you want. Make a copy. No problem. You're not in competition. Any individual customer is free to copy the book which he purchased. And since you own the book, you can lend the book to someone else. It's your book. You have the right to lend it out. You lend it to a friend. And if the friend asks you, hey, can I photocopy this? Why not? Why not? You own the book. You have the right to lend it to your friend. And just as you have the right to photocopy it yourself, you have the right to tell your friend, sure, go ahead, photocopy it. No objection at all. Even though your friend, who is only borrowing the book from you, did not pay for it. He's just borrowing the book from you. But if he wants to photocopy it, why not? You're not in competition with the publisher. And as long as you're not in competition with the publisher, there's no prohibition at all. Yesh isur hasagat gvul bahatak taklitim oksatot kishinasu l'shem mischak. If, however, you want to copy uh, back in those days uh, records, you remember the vinyl records, you see them in the old movies. If you want to copy vinyl records, or cassette, you know, back these you have cassette t- tapes, you know, these little reel-to-reel uh, magnetic tapes. You want, if you want to copy songs for commercial purposes, you want to sell the copies going into competition with the original issuer of the discs. That's competition and prohibited. The call as long as you're making the copies for non-commercial purposes, you're not going to sell them without in competition, then you can copy. Similarly, if you borrow someone's book, if you borrow someone's uh, disc, whatever it is, and uh, you want to copy it, as long as you're not going to be selling the copies, as long as there's no commercial element in the copying, you're fine. No problem at all. Now, uh, uh, well, well, one point is so far clear. If there is an element of competition, one merchant is selling his goods and some other merchant is selling similar goods, that's competition. They're both trying to get the market. 
they have their rules and regulations about who's allowed to compete with whom. But as soon as we eliminate the commercial element, no one is trying to grab a, sh a section of the market. No one is trying to grab a share of the market away from someone else. As long as there's no commercial competition, well, there's no uh, there's no there's no uh, no reason to block making copies at all. That is what we learned from the sources up till this point. Now I, I've brought you one of the great contemporary rabbis, namely the, the text on the screen at the moment. Rabbi Blau was his name, the Pesachoshen. Uh, the question now arises whether or not this is a maverick opinion. Or is this an opinion which is generally accepted among many great contemporary rabbis? Correct. You can uh, you can photocopy it with no restrictions. The only restriction would be is if you want to sell the copies. Then you're trying to take away a share of the market from the uh, from the original publisher. That could be problematic. But we're not going to get into the details now of what constitutes the same market and what constitutes a different market. Well, um, uh, the, uh, just to, uh, to survey the opinions of great contemporary rabbis, we're going to look at a tshuva now by Rav Menashe Klein. Rav Menashe Klein was uh, originally from the town of Ungvar in Hungary. Uh, he survived uh, the Holocaust, survived the uh, concentration camps, ended up in New York, where he became top-seated uh, uh, top halachic authority in the Hasidic community uh, of New York. Let's see what he has to say about this. Um, a record, back in those days, talking about a vinyl record, a taklit, or a tape, a tape recording, you bought a record or you bought a tape recording back in the days when they still sold magnetic tapes. I guess you can still buy them somewhere. Um, and it says on the book or it says on the package, it is prohibited to copy this. You know, may not be copied in any form whatsoever. You know, the, the formulations go on and on and on. Uh, can't copy this way, can't copy that way, can't make any copies at all. It says so on the book, or it says so on the package when you bought the disc. Are you allowed to make a copy for personal non-commercial use? When you bought it, it said on the package, this material may not be copied for any reason whatsoever. Are you bound by that? Are you bound by that? Could you make a copy for non-commercial reasons? That's the question. Answer. We're talking about a non-commercial situation where Ruvain, this makes up a name, you know, some person, name is Ruvain, Ruvain purchased a tape recording. Some song, Shlomo Kalibach, Rav Shlomo Kalibach, something like that. He bought, he bought a, a tape. Limashal, Ba'ad Arba. He paid, let's say, $4. Ruvain bought a, a, a tape recording 
of, I don't care who, Rabbi Shlomo, Carly Bach, he paid $4 for it. It's in New York, so I suppose four means $4. Uh, he wants to make a few copies so that they'll have multiple copies in his house. His children can listen to it. He can listen to it in his car. He can listen to it in his office. He wants to make a few copies. Since you need a special machine in order to dub, in order to copy tapes, a special, a special machine, which is going to make a good copy of the tape. Notain tape Shalola Shimon. Ruvain calls up Shimon and says, Shimon, you've, you've got the machine which makes really good copies of tapes, right? I have a tape uh, which I want copied. Can you copy it for me? Notain lo tape Shini, Rakshi Aklita love Akoma Ruvain. Well, he takes the tape, Shimon takes the tape, and copies it. Shimon, Shimon, the owner of the machine, is merely copying. He's not in the business of selling tapes. He's only in the business of copying tapes. He has no interest at all in the market out there, the market of selling and buying tapes. His business is only copying tapes. Mekabel schar malachas, one dollar. And uh, Shimon, who has this machine to copy tapes, charges one dollar for his business. He's, he makes a profit. His business is not buying and selling tapes. His business is copying tapes. He charges one dollar, let us say, for any copy he makes. Gam And Ruvein who hired Shimon to make the copies, is also not in business. He's not going to be selling any copies to anyone. He just wants a copy for his children for free. He wants a copy in his office. He wants a copy in his car. He has a neighbor who would like a copy. He's not going to sell a copy to his neighbor. He's not in, he's not in business. Uh, not going to make any profit here. The... Uh, uh, they simply wants copies for personal use. Correct. He rejects the idea of, of uh, intellectual property. In my humble opinion, and, and rabbis often express themselves very modestly, in my humble opinion, the following is the correct conclusion. For of course, no one told him he had to publish this uh, tshuva. The very fact that he chose to publish it means that he's uh, firmly, uh, firmly uh, committed to the following conclusion. Rak kisha oset tapes limkor yeshalav iser hasagas gvul. Was guilty of violating the rules of competition only if you are in business and selling the copies. Only if you are selling the copies and thereby taking away some share of the market from the original publisher of the tape. If you're not taking any, if you're not selling to the same market, there's no issue of competition and therefore all is well. Yes, of course, of course. Yeah, we'll, we'll come to this. 
if you're doing it for your own personal use, your own personal use and not for commercial purposes, you're not in competition with the original, and therefore there's no prohibition. You're in violation. You're, you're, you're possibly in violation of competition rules only if you steal away part of the market from the original uh, from the original salesperson. Now, again, we need a separate series of shiurim to define exactly where the market is and what constitutes two separate markets and what's the same market. But uh, uh, as long as there's no commercial element, there's no prohibition. He says, take a look in the Choshen Mishnah, and you'll see that the Choshen Mishnah, the Shofen Arach, talks about the prohibitions of competition only in terms of stealing away part of the market from someone else. But someone who, you, who copies his own property, property which you legally bought, no prohibition at all. It follows, therefore, that even though when you bought, whatever it is you bought, it, it, uh, the seller said to you, or the seller wrote in a message, you're not allowed to copy this in any form whatsoever, the prohibition of copying applies if you want to sell the copies. And uh, again, in another series of shearing, we'll have to discuss what constitutes the same market and what's a different market. Uh, but as long as the, as long as you're not uh, in business, or your business is not selling the copies, your business is merely making copies. You charge one dollar per copy that you make with your copy machine. Uh, you're, not, you're not in the business of selling the, the books, just copying them. You're not in competition with the original publisher. No prohibition at all. So the idea of the Ramah, which we saw in the beginning of today's Shi'ur, that develops through the centuries and becomes embraced by uh, contemporary poskim uh, nowadays as well. Now, at this point, at this point, um, let's uh, take a whole different approach. Uh, a, a whole different way of looking at this matter. Uh, I'm going to quote the opinion of Rav Lior. Uh, Rav Lior is retired now, but uh, for many years he was the uh, chief rabbi of Hebron, just uh, south of where I'm sitting now. And he, he in the Datil Umi world, was what well, well, still is quite influential. He's a, he's a heavyweight. And uh, here is his opinion. First of all, as far as copying a computer program is concerned, copying disks, copying recordings, copying computer programs, as long as you have no commercial purpose in mind, muterit. You're permitted to make copies. You want to copy a uh, computer program with no, inten no intention to sell. 
just for your own personal use, fine. No particular prohibition. Ulam, however, but if the original publisher, if the original distributor of the computer program says no, if Microsoft says you're not allowed to copy the program, well, it's not nice. It's not Hasidus. It's not an act of piety. Uh, 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 violating the will of Microsoft, if Microsoft says don't copy it, and you go ahead and copy it, uh, so it's not so pious. You know, uh, it's not so nice. Prohibited? No. Uh, not so nice. It's uh, not so nice. You know, it would be nicer to, 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 do, to do what Microsoft says. But if the question is permitted or prohibited, it is permitted to copy the, uh, uh, the computer program. He goes on and says, bet. Downloading material from the internet, whether it's a program, an app, uh, uh, text, music, whatever it is, downloading any material from the internet, a video game, Misha Gonev at Tochnota Diskim, Umefitsotam Lerabim, the pirate who initially cracked the program, the pirate who initially stole the program and removed the copyright protection, the, the, the digital copyright protection from the program or the music or whatever it is, the original pirate, the Reshita Internet, over Alisur Hamur, Shopegia Beshuyat Yotzrim. The original pirate is in violation of uh, uh, of uh, the uh, the pirate the original pirate is in violation of the uh, rights of the creator of the program the person who who uh, who cracked the uh, uh, the Microsoft program is guilty of violating Microsoft's rights bimuhad uh, especially all the more so if he's making a profit, but even if the even if the pirate is not making a profit, the very act of removing the copyright protection from the program, from the disc, whatever it is, is a violation of the rights of Microsoft or the original producer of the material. Ulam but all this pertains only to the pirate who cracked. The security, the 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 security on the original program. Ordinary surfers in the internet, golesh is the Hebrew word for surfing on the internet. Surfers on the internet, internet. Since the surfers have no control over what is available on the internet, they just. You know, whatever's available is available, but the surfers have no no control over what is offered on the internet. And since it is impossible for the original owner of the copyright to enforce his copyright once the material has been uploaded, 
Once the cracked material has been uploaded on the internet and has been downloaded who knows how many thousand times, who knows where in the world, once it's out there on the internet, the original owner loses all hope of ever gathering together and retrieving all those downloaded copies. It's simply impossible for the original owner of the copyright to uh, enforce his right and gather together all the downloaded copies called anyone is allowed to download whatever you want. The original pirate is in violation, but once the material is available for downloading on the internet, anyone is free to download it for personal use, not to sell to anyone else. This is very similar to lost property where the original owner of the property loses all hope of retrieving it. It's a din. The halacha is finders keepers. Okay, now we've begun a whole new approach to the issue. We're going to pause at this time. Next week, we're going to elaborate on Rav Dovely Orr's approach, and we'll see what the conclusions are. Okay, until then, I wish you a good week and eventually a Shabbat Shalom and look forward to seeing you all again a week from tonight.